Welcome to the latest United We Stand podcast. I'm Andy Mitten and, well, it's been a week where Manchester United fans, like fans of several big English clubs, have been raging since the announcement of a proposed European Super League last Sunday. In no small part, down to the strength of that feeling, those plans have now been dropped, at least for now. But frustrated fans are still furious. There have been protests outside Arsenal and Old Trafford this weekend, with more planned. The aim of the one at Old Trafford next week is to demand 50 plus one. That's an increased fan influence similar to the German model. There's a petition to try and enforce that too. But is it all idealistic? Is it wishful thinking? I'm delighted to welcome the guest to this week's United We Stand podcast. Jim O'Neill is a lifelong Manchester United fan. He's a Mancunian and he's got about 15 different name titles. Welcome, Jim. How Morning. should we describe you? Um, Jim O'Neill, please. But you're United a lord, fan. yeah? I am uh, a member of that uh, strange place, yeah. I'm uh, uh, Lord O'Neill of Gatley. And what, do your mates call you that when you, they ring you up to go out for a pint? Only when they've had a few and they're trying to wind me up. So but typically, typically, no. Okay. So could you just give us a sort of 30-second, one-minute resume of, of who you are and what you've done? A lot of people listening to this will be familiar, but there'll be people listening to this around the world who won't be so sure. familiar with who you are. So, I uh, I mean, the reason why I'm Lord O'Neill of Gatley is Gatley is where uh, I was brought up. Um, I went to uh, primary and junior school in Withenshaw, Crossacres, which... Uh, Amongst other many interesting twists in life, it turns out that's where another <coughs> another O'Neill with the sa- same surname went. Uh, turns out to be a couple of years younger than me. But um, my earliest days of United were getting a train from Gatley, where <coughs> uh, his elder g- generation would be terrorising the middle of Gatley on the way to Gatley Station to go to United every week. Uh, and I did that for years before I... Uh, disappeared off to university in the um, mid-70s. But uh, from that, I I spent a lot of time going through the education system and uh, I got a PhD in the dreaded economics and went into, amazingly, the world of finance, which I was in for the best part of uh, 32 years and left that eight years ago. And since then, I've been heavily involved in public policy uh, I was a minister in the Treasury for 17 years, uh, and since then, for year, I couldn't start, sorry, did I say 17 years? 17 months. Um, and since then, I've been involved primarily in a lot of public policy, particularly issues to do with international health, which I am, I was immersed in this week until this topic came on the scene. And for a brief time, you were a non-executive director of Manchester United before the 2005 uh, takeover. I was, I was, I was a non-exec for about a year, um, but uh, that came to an end when the current uh, owners bought United. And you were involved in the Red Knights a decade ago when there was a lot of unrest about those current owners. So the uh, uh, yes, uh, in a sort of non-official way. Let's just say uh, there was plenty of rumours. Um, about my involvement throughout the staggering publicity of when that uh, initiative appeared on the scene, especially the first fortnight. Um, but I never, 
I don't recall publicly speaking about it at all, actually, not least because um, it was a difficult issue for me to manage, given that I was the still chief economist of Goldman Sachs at the time. But no, I was immersed in the middle of that, yeah. What was your reaction last Sunday when you heard of this proposed European Super League? Um, so, two really. First of all, it, I was slightly surprised that uh, it seemed to be such a shock to seemingly a lot of people in the high levels of running the game because according to some of my sources, you know, that a lot of this was ready to go at least from the core uh, people around it um, last October. In fact, somebody in the media wanted my view about it then and I said I didn't want to talk about it, but it was interesting and he was surprised that um, nobody else was focusing on it. <clears throat> and the second the second thing um, was just how even on Sunday night seemingly little was coming out as to why it was such a great idea. Um, but it was pretty obvious to me, partly because I'd had months to think about it, and as you'd know better than me, something like this has been flying around for years, but of course at the core, quite rightly, everybody's outraged. The idea that you have uh, such a thing without any competition is just ridiculous. And then the fury that followed, both publicly and when the British government got involved. Did that surprise you? I think uh, I think the latter is a really good development, um, and one wonders whether the owners would have reacted in the way they did without realising that they'd misread the government here. Uh, I think that's an important thing. I think I'm delighted with it. Um, I sort of I sort of feel as though uh, this is a sort of crescendo moment uh, that a whole can of worms has been opened here. That obviously some specifically related to United but you know obviously more broadly to the whole nature how of how football has evolved and I I think there's a lot of lot a lot of big questions that need to be uh, now addressed and I don't think it's going to be able to shove the genie back into the bottle and leave them unresolved and so it's kind of quite exciting but it it, it, it kind of depends on the this complex interaction of how fans behave uh, to some degree, how the players behave, obviously how the owners themselves think. Have they actually learnt anything in the past week? Um, that's important. Are they really going to want to think a bit differently? Uh, and it certainly depends on how governments and international bodies behave as well. So, uh, But it seems to me, and I think <coughs> of not, uh, not irrelevance, irrelevant in the context of it here in England is for this particular government uh, who one of its main domestic mantra is this supposed notion of levelling up which is trying to help the lot of those that have been left behind for you know the past few decades in many ways this mess epitomises just why something has to be done about so many things like this and given that football touches tens of millions of people Politically, um, for a complex prime minister like the one we've got, it's quite attractive to to, tr to focus on it. Uh, it. It's sort of cousin of sort of some aspects of Brexit in that sense. Um, but whether whether he whether he will or or not is is in itself hard to 
to feel because of the the complexity of it and it can easily like so many other issues be put in the too difficult to deal with bucket but this government could absolutely have the power to do something to make the ownership of football clubs far less attractive to people like the glazers at manchester i think that's it i think i think you got the nail on hit the nail on the head and if you look at uh the few but important words that the culture secretary uh, and the PM have said publicly and what they appear to be and others are saying off the record, it looks at this point that they've taught themselves into thinking about some kind of legislation. And you would have thought that, or I would have thought that in itself has by definition got to force some of these owners to think differently than before last weekend. That term... Legislative bombshell it was incredible. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it's you know, I might, I hope it's not wishful thinking. Yeah, because Pop- it is complex, yeah. and for for many people uh, of of a Tory way of party way of thinking, and this belief in free markets, of course, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, uh, it's a pretty radical thing to consider doing. But but going back to where why I raised the leveling up issue. You know, the way, and and this is partly why the whole football thing relates to much of the experiences of my day job, aspects of how modern capitalism have been applied the past 30 years is leaving all sorts of what what economists would classically call market failures. And the whole, you know, a lot of even Milton Friedman or his acolytes would think that when there's a persistent market failure, you have to sort of deal with it, and that's when governments are needed to intervene. And Lots I think this is a classic. This is a classic case. Yeah, much has been made of the German model. I know a friend of a friend who was looking at putting money into a big German football club, buying it basically, and then he realised he couldn't buy it because they're protected. Yeah. You cannot have things like highly leveraged buyouts. Do you think that should have ever been allowed to have happened in the first place with the Glazers? So I think the two things that I personally would broadly like to see from a, from for the whole game, uh, and, and with Gary Neville and uh, uh, David Bernstein and that crowd in this regard, I, I think that the, the need for a really powerful independent regulator is has, has been completely demonstrated by this mess. Uh, and it, it's puzzled me for years. <clears throat> and in, in an odd way, the Premier League in itself has highlighted this, that you know you have these three different bodies, Premier League, Football League, and FA, with the FA being historically, of course, the one that <clears throat> is, is sort of seen as the most important. Or, but in reality, because uh, of the way it's all been structured, sort of gets less and less uh, as it all goes on. And, and crucially, as to why I raised the independent regulator, none of them have any incentives to really take responsibility and accountability about big issues. Uh, and so a lot of the important things slip through the cracks. And of course, within it, they all find it, particularly the Premier League, but also the FA, easy to blame UEFA. And obviously, there's huge issues about UEFA as well. But, but if you have a strong regulator, then amongst the things it would do would would be to at least give a much better chance of having uh, the so-called proper person standard for for the kind of ownership to be to be truly followed. I think anybody that look, looked at this 
with a dispassionate eye the past 25 years would you know would wonder whether that actually exists when you think of some of the owners that have come into English football because a lot of them a lot you you know a lot of them aren't you know have used and to some degree United obviously epitomize that a lot of them use leverage rather than natural wealth to essentially and it's very been very clever to sort of see about the globalization of the sports and football uh, and and thought of this as a fantastic way of extracting cash from the sponsorship and advertising deals. And Manchester and, United. And it's not, obvi- it's not obvious from a societal perspective. That's for a game like football, that's kind of appropriate, especially if it's going to harm the very core of what football is all about. And it is being harmed. And Manchester United was probably the most aggressive takeover of all. There was a piece in the FT yeah. on Saturday saying that it was so aggressive at one point under Malcolm Glazer that even JP Morgan pulled back from it. Of course, they went back to see the deal through in the end. But you talk about regulation mm-hmm. and, and having power. Yeah. And if we go back to 2005, the Glazers saw out um, large protests from the fans. FC United was yeah. obviously yeah. Um, formed. I can remember in October 05 going down to see the government with representatives from Manchester United fans and meeting yeah. some pretty senior people, not the Prime Minister, yeah. as was what happened yeah. last week. And they took us into Whitehall and said, here's your tea and biscuits. It's very nice to meet you. We feel for you so <laughs> much. And yes, you've absolutely got valid points. And we're going to write a nasty letter saying that we strongly disapprove. And it wasn't a wasted journey, but it just showed how little power the government had. Yeah. So... Yeah. A regulator with power would be a big improvement. Uh, definitely, in my I mean th- <clears throat> that I think is ne- needed for the for the whole broad good of the game. Uh, you know, with a, the last couple of years, I, I, I've had chats with uh, those responsible for trying to find uh, new new leadership for the for each of the FA and the Premier League. Uh, and it was quite clear in those very brief chats I had that those positions, you can't really do anything <laughs> of, of things that matter to the broader collective interest of the game. Um, and, and, and what you're just doing in those positions is just sort of ticking boxes that allows essentially the largest revenue and focused commercial owners to push them all around the way they want to do. And and we've seen it in great, in great, uh, irritating clarity in the past uh, a week ago i want to i've just remembered I, I i i sort of use your question about the german model to talk about the regulator but let me you know uh and going back to what you said at the start um friday lunchtime i, I was out with a bunch of mates for uh, a rather enjoyable long lunch and uh they're all football mads and we most of the time we were arguing about about exactly this and and i think um, there, was, there were many aspects of the, of the German model which have huge appeal, um, and I, I certainly want to see some steps considered in that direction. But it is also true, as you said with your example of the friend of a friend, um, that it might, at the margin, uh, discourage some of the investment that German football otherwise could have got and probably has come here. Now, I, I still personally think on balance it's probably worth it. Um, 
in fact, um, on the back of that argument, I was ploughing through the relative performance of, 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 of countries in European competitions going back the past 40 years and including since the start of the Premier League. And, um, you know, the, you, you know this again better than me, the Spanish uh, teams have just had so much, I think it's something like close to twice as many European uh, competition victories than any other country. But but that's not a model of governance. Uh, and the Germans have had less than us, and it's obviously Champions League dominated by Bayern Munich. Uh, and certainly but because of the past few years, you know, we have got quite a strong representation. So the, the counter-argument is that if you do that model, it, it, it penalises the current structure of the Premier League and means less success. I, I, don't, I don't really get that. And in any case, if it results as I think my fellow debaters were ignoring, that it's a journey that keeps going to having more and more monopolistic or, or cartel-like control, which again, the idea of a rigged European Super League completely highlights their intention. You know, it's not a stable situation. So I, 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 I do think there are, there are ways of, of trying to achieve things uh, like the German model, such as some kind of golden golden shares for fans, for example, which obviously legislation-wise is equally radical. But I think either of those things now have to happen uh, because I think, and I, I, without wanting to over-dramatise it, I think in the broader issue of how society is, is trying to exist through this pandemic, leave, deal with this pandemic, uh, and against the background of the whole issues about equality and whether capitalism is fair, you know, I don't think our government, given how much the English teams have been in the middle of this, can, can afford to just ignore it in the way they did with you back in 2005. I think it would be a big mistake. You mentioned the golden share. And, we've and got I hope some, not. Yeah, me too. You mentioned the golden share and and fans... We've got mm -hmm. some questions from fans. Forgive them for being sceptical and cynical. You mentioned Spain. You mentioned I'm not, su not surprised. <laughs> Spain is, Spain's been a football factory. It's got more qualified coaches. The weather helps. The facilities are very good. Uh, there are many faults with Spanish football as well. But the long-standing mm -hmm. cultural connections with Latin America have helped bring... Lionel Messi went to Barcelona. He, he didn't go to Everton. And that's helped them traditionally, although football's becoming yeah. far more globalised now. And Manchester City are as likely to get a top player out of Uruguay as Barcelona. Germany, I've been over, I've been to 15, 16 grounds in Germany. I've spoke to lots of people there. I've seen great advantages with areas such as the safe standing, which when it was introduced, yeah. the British clubs just dismissed out of hand. And now they're going to introduce it, so the Germans were way ahead of the game there. Ticket prices yeah. were far more favourable. To be fair now in the UK, they've not increased Old Trafford for a decade. Uh, away ticket prices are limited to, to £30. Mm -hmm. I've heard people in Germany saying we prefer the Premiership model. It's much more competitive. Bayern Munich winning all the time is not a good thing. But on balance, yeah. when I've walked up to stadiums at Union Berlin or at Dortmund or in Dusseldorf mm -hmm. or in Cologne, it feels so much more community-minded right. than it does. Yeah, and completely. The atmosphere is better. There's so many positives. 
I think I might have said this to you a few years back, I can't remember, but I, I went to the uh, the European Cup final between Bayern and <coughs> Dortmund at Wembley, and, and, and the tickets I had with my son, it was just the two of us, were in, in the middle of the, the Dortmund end, so to speak, and I, I was jealous. I, I, I couldn't believe it. The spirit of, of the, and the, at the noise and the atmosphere um, compared to anything at Wembley involving United the past 20 years was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Uh, and so I, I share a lot of what you say from my very limited experience. We appreciate the support of our sponsors, which mean that you can listen to this podcast for free. No, I'm not going to ask Lord Jim if he uses Manscaped or not. But I will tell you about Express VPN. Um, we've been with them for a long time. We can't ex- stress enough the importance of protecting your online activity from big tech who track, spy and profit from you. But there's another reason that many people on this podcast listen to. Express VPN, Netflix. Basically, if you subscribe to Netflix in one country, then you can only watch the films that are on in that country. What Express VPN does with its app is it encrypts the data and it reroutes you through a server location of your choice that protects your data, but it also lets you control which country you want to watch Netflix or where you want Netflix to think that you're in. Express VPN lets you choose from over 90 different countries. So every time you run out of stuff to watch, you can just fire up the app on your laptop or smart TV, switch country and hit connect. Once you refresh the page, you'll get a brand new selection of shows. It's that simple. And here's the best bit. It's not just for Netflix. You can use Express VPN to unlock shows or sports or other streaming services too. That is a reason why Express VPN is the number one rated VPN provider by the publishers of Wired, CNET and well, we use it for United We Stand and it's very, very good. So be smart, protect your data, stop paying full price for streaming services while only getting access to a fraction of their content. Visit expressvpn.com forward slash United right now and get three months of their service for free. That's expressvpn.com forward slash United. Go there to learn more. Also, Beer 52, that offer's still on. Um, you get your free beers. Go to beer52beer52.com forward slash United. And now, back to Jim. So some questions from United mm-hmm. We Stand readers. Is there any conceivable path to majority fan ownership and control, or is a more palatable owner the best we can hope for? It's, a, it's extremely complex. Um, but it partly depends on the on the threat and reality of regulation. I, I would have thought, as somebody with a background in business like myself, that the model for the Glazers uh, would not have given any probability to government regulation to intervene. And as we've been discussing, that probability has changed. So I would have thought that raises the the chance, which has not been there, by the way, the past decade and was part of the rather big problem <laughs> with the, with the so-called red night idea in 2010. Is that there's no there's been never any inclination that they wanted to sell. Uh, and there still and I, still hasn't. No, there still hasn't. And that, as you and I are chatting, I know there's a 
amusing story in that I think the Daily Mirror is the source of this morning that they'd sell at four billion pounds. But no disrespect to the Mirror, uh, I, 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 I'm not sure that there's anything to that. But but I would have thought that the, the increased probability of regulation w would increase the probability of them actually looking for an exit. Um, but but without that, then it by definition, not least because I've been thinking about it for 15 years, it's really difficult. Um, second thing to say is, obviously it depends at the price and the amount needed. And, and there are very few genuinely wealthy individuals in the world um, or commercial entities that could afford from their own compliance and governance and standards perspective to consider releasing that amount of cash to acquire something that's, you know, so temperamental and involving a lot of people outside their core business. So it, it's really difficult. Um, <clears throat> but if but if there were an entity inside football that could lead that way, and particularly of the flip side of this, is that if you look at the growth of the of the power, the really powerful aspects of technology in in everything, including in finance, I think Manchester United fans to do something as as bold and crazy and ambitious as that have a much better chance than any other any other club, because you know the growth of uh, so-called um, blockchain type currency, for example. Um, and the whole, the whole sort of crowdfunding, all of, all of these things mean that there's a way of executing these things that many, that probably back in 2010 just weren't realistic. And, and there's been a very interesting parallel again going on in finance um, about three months ago, something called GameStop, which was looked like a, a business that was full of debt and wasn't doing very well. Uh, I laugh because one can think of a parallel. And um, out of the blue, a bunch of young, uh, not, I don't know if they were young, a, a, young, a bunch of individual people from their internet sort of seemingly grouped together and started trying to buy the stock and force, force the price up, at least temporarily. It, it fell sharply again. But it sort of interrupted the status quo of, of, of how those that sort of dominate that part of the market thought they could sort of you know, live their lives. And that, that was quite powerful uh, development, in my opinion, about the scale of the possible. But it is definitely really complex, that is for sure, Andy. I think the situation has changed not just since 2005. Um, if Manchester United fans across the world now were offered to buy a stake in the club, I'm absolutely certain there, there would be huge uptake. And a sort of disruption in the headlines caused by, by GameStop is a good example. Yeah. But on on Thursday, I had a chat with Martin Edwards, who was chairman of United oh, yeah. in yeah. 1991, when United went public for the first time. And he was telling me that he arrived in Rotterdam late because he was busy readying the club to go on the stock market. And they were worried mm -hmm. that the shares wouldn't be brought up, that enough fans wouldn't buy them. They put the the, the date back after Rotterdam, hoping that the team would win in Rotterdam and fans on a wave of euphoria would buy shares in Manchester United and the uptake was pretty disappointing 
it was quite small. Yeah, I remember. Mm. I remember that. I just don't think that had happened. Now the world's changed massively, and there are pockets of, of wealth. And I think if you offered United fans a share and varying degrees of of investment, then there'd be a huge take up. But we can be idealistic. We can talk about this. If the Glazers are not yeah. willing to sell, and they've ridden storms out before, then they're not ridden willing to sell. And I'm yeah. sure that the Super League not happening makes it far less attractive to them. I'm also sure that the Super League in a different form or guys will will reappear, whether that's in three years or or in five years. But we've got some more questions um, for you. Um, would the would the potential involvement of fans put investors off? <clears throat> Again, it's complex, but I um, I don't think so. And I, I'll link it to something else I, I wanted to say as part of the uh, further previous question. You know this 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 letter that I I publicly sent with uh, Paul Marshall this week. In the spirit of of their own or Joel's rather intriguing. <laughs> And different approach, um, you know. It, if they were really wanting to learn from this whole experience and uh, and do the right thing, then uh, they've got a really, really to, to stop to stop this protest, unlike last ones. They've got to learn to do do the right thing. Otherwise, just get out of here because I I can't see this settling down because it's and this brings me to the the second question linked to what i was saying about the whole circumstances of how this happened and now going more to my day job there's sort of a a, a bit of a nascent growth of what i'd call profit with a with a purpose and and in business it's become known as esg and and some of the more uh cutting edge way of thinking about the sustainability of modern business is that there has to be instead of just maximization of profit there has to be optimization of a number of goals which makes it more complex but of which earning profit is one of them but the obsession with making profit sometimes at the expense of other what one would presume desirable goals in this case, making the game of football enjoyable and actually better, uh, I I would say is at the edge of uh, a growing movement that's affecting all of business, including finance. Um, and you can see it already in other, you know, look at it in climate change. There is a a whole uh, emergence of a, of a of a group of central banks who are the ones that control the world's policymaking, where they are seriously considering whether the, the allocation of central bank support to com- the commercial banking system is going to be adjusted to constrain banks' ability to lend so that we can achieve net zero emissions. Now, it, it wouldn't take much for them to think, well, hang on a minute, we're now going to, and this is highly relevant in Spain, by the way, and it might be part of the motive behind what's caused Real Madrid to be attracted to this. If, if their banks are suddenly not going to be so constantly uh, an easy source of very cheap credit for them, then it comp- changes the game completely. And, and that would make it, you know, if, if that were the case in 2005, 
There's no way in a million years that the Glazers could have even have bought Manchester United. Yeah. I see the ownership models in Spain, and I used to think that Barcelona was a, was a panacea, it was a perfect model, and I no longer have that view, partly because, hu- because human beings are involved in it with the, their egos and the baggage, and yeah. Barcelona has become a very pro- problematic club, which is in... The, the Glazers have run Manchester United in a far better way than Barcelona have yeah. been run in the last five years. It's in a complete mess. It's amazing for you to hear you say that because you have obviously you've spent a ton of time there and thought about it so much. But I'm not surprised to hear you saying that now. I used to think it was almost the perfect club. I mean, they refused to have sponsors to tarnish their great shirt with a sponsor. And then I've just seen it unravel over the last few years and mm-hmm. presidents come and go. I think this idea of a president every few years, it's, it's very democratic and very attractive and the fans can go for this person but it mirrors politics absolutely you see populist presidents come in you see presidents voted in on on austerity you see presidents coming in selling dreams that you know they they can't really achieve and then i see barcelona this football club owned by the people charge manchester united fans 120 euros for the worst tickets in the ground (laughs) and then say oh what's the fuss about well the fuss is it's the most expensive ticket in the history of manchester united's uh entire existence apart from from a final you can can barely see the pitch and you don't think there's an issue there how out of touch are you right and they do look after the match going fans there are lots of positives if uh, if things are not going well but fans can be absolute hypocrites as well i can remember a motion to get rid of one president and a new guy was lined up and he said all the right things and then barca won a game and a second game and a third game and after eight wins all the protests just melted away. <laughs> and I just thought, you absolute hypocrites. And the guy who led fickle. it was We just, human beings are fickle. Yeah. yeah, now this is different with the Glazers. This is about ownership. Yeah. This is about structure. And, and it is completely different. But mm-hmm. I don't think that the, the Barca model is, is the panacea. I've also been in, intrigued with the reaction in Spain that a lot of people are saying, well, what's the problem with the Super League? Because they need a way out of the financial mess yeah, that they've no. got themselves in. Now, they, they should As make say, their, that... their, their domestic league stronger. They should share the television revenues more evenly yeah. than they do. And they shouldn't waste so much money on players who are clearly not worth that money. They've, they've got to be accountable for those decisions. The more, the more I think about it, and listening to you confirms it, you know, I... I think a lot of the inspiration for the two big Spanish clubs is coming from the evidential collapse of their models. But at the core of it, going back to what I was saying a minute ago, they can't depend uh, on the same degree of largesse by their local banks anymore. In fact, I think uh, from within the European Monetary Union system of interrelationships and the European Central Bank at the core of it, that in itself is indirectly probably constraining the largesse that both Barcelona and Real Madrid have done the past uh, 20 years. And, and it, so it does leave, it leaves them really exposed. Yep. I remember when Ronaldinho was going to United. United were absolutely convinced it was done. Ronaldinho was convinced it was done. Ronaldinho told Cleberson, because he told me, and, and Ronaldinho told me, I'm going to Manchester. United didn't think that Barca had the money. But because there were so many Spanish banks, because FC Barcelona yeah. holds such a yeah. place in Spanish yeah. and Catalan society, 
there were yeah. numerous credit lines. They're no longer available to them. No, exactly. It's crucial. This is crucial. I mean, I, I, I vaguely I remember uh, Fergie hinting at me that, that it was a done deal that he was coming to United at the time. But you're right. I think the, the key thing was the largesse that they could get from those local banks, but it's not there anymore. And Paul Cleverson did join United. His son was born in <laughs> his son was born in Wivenshore Hospital, little Clebinio. <laughs> he's got Wivenshore on his passport, and he's saying to Ronaldinho, "Well, what's what's going on here?" There you go. He can claim to be a Wivenshore Red. How about that? No, no wonder he failed. He was probably thinking, "What on earth's gone on in my life here?" <laughs> Fantastic. So. This is a, another question from Marita. Elements yeah. of your open letter to go to Joe Glazer mm-hmm. appeal to them to sell for what would be a pretty unrealistic price, e.g. the, the original IPO price. Was this letter mm-hmm. actually constructed to outline a serious set of options to sell, or is it just an emotive response or a PR exercise given the current outrage because it comes across as the latter? Is this just a stunt with no realistic end game? How harsh... How harsh! I told you we've got cynical yeah, and skeptical yeah. readers. No, listen, it's listen. I, I think again, you and I have chatted, uh, but I, I realised for so long that at times United's fan base is a, makes Beirut seem like a garden party. But, uh, uh, but, but Beirut of the nineteen eighties, by the way, because Beirut is much <laughs> improved. It's been rebuilt and is absolutely beautiful. It's not quite the yeah, Paris no. that East that it once was, but no, no, nor yeah, is it nineteen eighty five. Listen, I th- I, it's a great challenge. It's a great challenge. That question. So. <clears throat> I mean, people can think of it what it is, but let, let's just say, particularly the the co-signer of it, Paul Marshall. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure Paul um, would necessarily need or particularly want PR. Uh, can you tell I us get, about Paul? I, What's Paul's story? He's not familiar with, with a lot of fans. Paul Paul's a very successful uh, investor in financial markets and has been for a long, long time. But he's a passionate Manchester United fan, and he believes in societal purpose. Um, so he has the same sort of core values as I do about what, in essence, we would like to see as a more philanthropic ownership of, of United. Uh, but the idea—I <laughs> I get why people would say this sort of thing—but the idea that it was done as a PR stunt is 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 funny. Um, we did it because it. You know, I mean, it was I that I dreamt it up myself Thursday. I'm thinking, well, what, what? Not least because, of course, not surprisingly, in the previous two days, I've got all sorts of people all over the place saying, you know, here you go, red nights, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, well, hang on a minute. What, what, what is realistic? And you and I have touched on it. <clears throat> the two things, the two things that trying to focus on it objectively is the is the policy environment might have changed and the presumption by owners that regulators don't exist or won't do anything to influence their decisions that's probably changed and secondly with it their sort of uh sort of presumed plan of this never-ending rise of of sort of getting more and more of the cake just for themselves might have changed too um so in the spirit of Joel's letter I thought well why don't we why don't we put them on the spot because you know linked to this profit with purpose idea what on earth have they had a a dual share structure where it means anybody who's daft enough 
can have ownership of, of those shares, but it gives you absolutely no rights whatsoever. And so the only attraction to any investor to have had these shares since 2012 is because they believe they would rise a lot. And a really important point, which the, the nature of that question doesn't really understand, is that <clears throat> it's having the IPO has been fantastic for the Glazer family because it's allowed them to take a lot of cash out through dividend payments and other occasional activities. But it's been a really bad share to own. Um, you know, I think it closed around 16.30 in New York on Friday. The IPO was at $14 a share, so it, it's, it's barely 20% above where it was nine years ago. And this has been the single best decade for the performance of US equities ever. Um, so, and that, that might well be because of this, you know, strange and sort of very um, asymmetric beneficial structure of ownership. So there's one thing. <clears throat> Secondly, um, if, if they were to, sorry, second thing to, to mention in this regard, which we didn't put in the letter, but I think you've written about before and it's been rumored and I think there's something to it. They probably have wanted to get rid of some of their family stake. Uh, it's, it's reasonably well known, I think, that not all six of them think the same. Um, and, and they've tried to get people to consider buying, uh, let's say, up to 20%. But again, who in the right minds would want to do that unless you've got some kind of influence over decisions? And so, so the, 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 let, the spirit of the letter is to, if you really want to do the right thing, start doing it by, by, by having a much more sensible structure in, in, the, in the current criteria of the world of finance. But if you really want to do the right thing, don't wait for legislation. Execute a situation where United fans can have more than 50% now. And that they have the power to do that, you know, this Monday. I know Joel replied to your letter and agreed to all your terms immediately, so that was encouraging. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they, I they really... Hold, I won't hold my breath. They really hung people out to dry. There's, there's a lot of very good people work at Manchester United. It's a large mm. employer mm. in that part of Manchester. There's a 1,000 people work there. There's so many people done good things, including building relations with the supporters in recent years. The manager was yeah. left high and dry as well. I mean, United commercially have been hugely successful. And I would speak to people at Barca and Madrid who still maintain Manchester United are the top dogs commercially in terms of their ideas and how they execute them and how they bring sponsors in, mm -hmm. even though the team's not been as good as Real Madrid or Barcelona. Yeah. Yeah. In, in, in the last decade. Do you think the Glazers have now maximised their returns? And if so, what is it to entice another owner to come in if the club's profits are already maximised? That, that is an equally really big, tricky question. Um, so but one, one slight questioning of how you present that. I think that, that it is the perception that United is still this greatest thing commercially. But if you look, really carefully at the numbers. I think I'm right in saying that for the past five years, it's kind of flatlined outside the media rights. Um, and that in itself, I would have thought was a sign for them that, and, and maybe also part of why they were so eager to do something different like this weird collapsed idea, 
is that they need to find a new source of, of accelerating commercial revenue growth again. Um, but, it's a, but the second part of your point is a really crucial one, and it goes back to what I touched on about finding a fresh new owner uh, on the current terms of behavior of, of the world without um, regulatory policy or, or something else to have fans involved. Because I don't know um, who, who would want to go paying crazy money to extract the club away from the Glazers in these circumstances. Even back in uh, 2010, when, when I was in the middle of the Red Knight thing, there were some very, very savvy people whose names didn't become public who were involved. And they said, well, this whole thing is a can of worms and it's going to come tumbling down. So what's the point in trying to pay over the odds to let people out who don't really know anything about the underlying game and have any interest in it? Because all you're doing is guaranteeing them uh, and their future uh, families uh, a ridiculous amounts of money when, when the peak's been passed. And it's a, it's a pretty you know, fair comment uh, because... The broader aspects of this, it, 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 it's not impossible that this sort of gravy train of the commercialization of football has also hit a peak with what's happened in the past week because of the obvious reasons. But it, it, it adds to the likelihood that there's a very, very small number of people that, are, that unless themselves are going to take leverage, that could, could own Manchester United at the kind of prices that most people would talk about today. Um, but with 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 governments thinking about uh, legislation, and with the ability of of those uh, enormous number of fans that United have got all over the world, with with a with a profit with a purpose goal as opposed to just profit, that's a whole different set of conditions. So, what happens next? Um. Not sure. I think uh, I, I said earlier when this came up, it depends on the interaction with four different sets of players. The fans, to some degree, the players, I'll throw the managers in there too, uh, the owners and also the government. And I think if the government, and they're all linked to each other, if the government continues to, to, to be pushed or volunteers the notion of some kind of regulation, that in itself can only be helpful for the whole structure of the game, but also for the case of having better ownership of United. Uh, that in itself depends on on how the likes of important influencers like yourself, Andy, and Must, and and you know Red Issue guys, and Tony, and so many others, uh, having a collective spirit and and make it being a bit like Be Beirut. Uh, and making sure that you know this is this is what United fans want. Um, and it's very interesting that we happen to be playing Liverpool next weekend. In that regard, it'll that'll be quite an interesting day. Um, and then uh, obviously it depends on on in crucially in the middle of all of this, the owners themselves. Do, do they want to just supposedly just ride this out, or? Again, because it'll get keep getting thrown at him repeatedly if they don't, you know, what is doing the right thing? You know, United We Stand, Red Issue, all the other fanzines should be, you know, 
when are you going to do the right thing, Joel? And you could say, come on, Joel, you've made your money, lad. Just relax a bit. Come over to there Manchester. You, you don't need to... <laughs> You don't need to hire security anymore. Come and enjoy the match. If, if you're a big United fan, get a seat in the Stratford and there you put, go. put past troubles behind you. There you go. Wishful you could even come in his, you could even borrow Bex's green and gold scarf. How about that? I'd like to thank you for your time, Jim. My pleasure. So that was Jim O'Neill. I hope you found that interesting. It's now Sunday, United are about to play Leeds United, you'll no doubt know the score by the time you've listened to this. And United we stand number 315 goes to Prim on Monday. There's loads of stuff in there about what's been going on, there's well written articles, there's insights, there's stuff you absolutely will not know until you read it. And there's also a 16 page Rotterdam special where we've tracked down, spoke to 30 different people over the last few months and... I'm just looking down at the list of them. Eusebio, the former Barca player. Brian McLeod was really funny. Martin Edwards, the former United chairman. Mark Hughes, the Dutch view. I even got the Swedish referee last week and he was sending me pictures of his medals and pictures of him in Rotterdam. A couple of the rum lads who travelled over from Manchester. Um, a, a lad who's in a very famous picture has, has talked about what he uh, went through over there, travelling Barcelona fans. And then people who worked at United, who were in charge of the travel, logistics, who couldn't talk at the time because they were working for the club. You know, there's nothing that they could say at the time. Happy Mondays, there's loads in there. So, I, mean, I, I could have put that anywhere, I'll be blunt. I could have sold it anywhere for, for good money. But I've not. I've put, I'm going to put it in United We Stand and we need people to, to buy United We Stand and to support United We Stand and the original work that we do. If you want to subscribe, get lively, please. Just go to uwsonline.com. It's two clicks and you've subscribed for the next 10 issues. If you prefer print, that's great. That's better for us. If you prefer the digital edition, that's cheaper. There's no postage costs and you can download it onto your tablets. That's fine as well. If you just want to order this issue as a one-off, we prefer you subscribe, but we appreciate not everyone can subscribe then if you just want this issue, PayPal, £3.99 in the UK, to uwsmag at yahoo.co.uk, with your name and address. If you're outside the UK, for the rest of Europe and Republic of Ireland, that's £5.49 and £5.99 for the rest of the world. Just allow a bit of time, because the postal systems with COVID is taking much, much longer. So we've got subscribers all around the world. They're the people who keep the fanzine going. If they don't subscribe, we don't have a fanzine. I've got plenty of other work I could be cracking on with, trust me. But this has been really enjoyable. And we've even tracked down a photographer who took some of the most iconic shots of Rotterdam at that time. Some great stuff in there. Anyway, until next week for the next podcast, goodbye.